Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and thank you for tuning in to the New Books in African American Studies podcast, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Jared Piketty, and today I have the great pleasure of speaking with Professor Karen Woods Weirman about her fascinating new book, The Case of the Slave Child Med, Free Soil and Anti-Slavery Boston, published by the University of Massachusetts Press in 2019. Professor Weirman is a professor of English at Worcester State University and author of One Nation, One Blood, Interracial Marriage in American Fiction, Scandal, and Law, 1820-1870, also published by the University of Massachusetts Press in 2005. In 1836, an enslaved six-year-old girl named Med was brought to Boston by a woman from New Orleans who claimed her as property. Learning of the girl's arrival in the city, the Boston Female Anti-Slavery Society waged a legal fight to secure her freedom and affirm the free soil of Massachusetts. While Chief Justice Lemuel Shaw ruled quite narrowly in the case that enslaved people brought to Massachusetts could not be held against their will, the Boston Female Anti-Slavery Society claimed a broad victory for the abolitionist cause, and Med was released to the care of a local institution. When she died two years later, celebration quickly turned to silence and her story was soon forgotten. As a result, Commonwealth v. Aves is little known outside of legal scholarship. In this book, Karen Woods Weirman complicates Boston's identity as the birthplace of abolition and the cradle of liberty and restores Med to her rightful place in anti-slavery history by situating her story in the context of other writings on slavery, childhood, and the law. Ultimately, the case of the slave child med forces its readers to confront the contested meetings of slavery and freedom in pre-Civil War America, a topic debated extensively by scholars of African-American history over the last century. Professor Weirman's new book also joins an emergent and energetic historiographic conversation, examining how enslaved and freed children navigated the rocky terrain of life in the early Republican North a topic most recently considered by scholars, including Anne May Duane, Sarah L.H. Groningsater, and Crystal Lynn Webster. It is a captivating and beautifully written book, and I am very honored to be able to interview the book's author. Good morning, Professor Weirman, and thank you so much for joining us. Good morning, and thank you so much for having me. I'm always happy to talk about MED. I was hoping that we could kick off our interview with you telling us a little bit more about yourself and the scope of your scholarly research? Sure. My undergraduate degree is in American Studies from Georgetown University, and I think my experiences in that program really set the stage for the rest of my scholarly career. I went on to graduate study at the University of Minnesota in the English department, and I was very lucky to be able to continue my interdisciplinary interests and work with professors in history and Afro-American studies and the famed American studies program there as well. You know, after I published my first book, One Nation, One Blood, which was a pretty expansive look at narratives and rhetorics of interracial marriage, I said, 
well, I'd like to write about one thing. And when I was looking about for a new project, the med case seemed perfect. It took The whole thing took place in a crisp 11 days. And as you know from the book, um, I ended up spanning the centuries in my attempt to tell Med's story. And so I'm, I'm looking forward to exploring more about that today. Could you take us back to the moment when you first came across Med and her tragic story in the archive? Did you know then and there that this was a story you wanted to share with the world? Absolutely. It's remarkable that I stumbled upon this case completely by accident. I was working on a conference paper about Lydia Mariah Child, and in her selected letters, I just came across this case that she seemed to be involved in. I wanted to know more, so I went to the microfiche, her collected correspondence, and I'll never forget sitting in the Wellesley College Library and realized that Med had died, and I, I just couldn't understand how this could have happened. You know, this landmark, important case that I had never heard of had this tragic ending, which seemed to me to be this terrible irony of fate. And so I I realized that I needed to know more. And I wrote that first conference paper. It got some good reviews. And I, I kind of took off from there. The project had many fits and starts, intellectual dead ends, problems with evidence, But I realized that no one cared about this story more than I did. And I I needed to tell her story. She had been erased, and I just could not let this happen again. And so the early work had some of the broad outlines of, of the book, the role of the Somerset case, her tragic early death, the attempt to perhaps rewrite her story through fiction. But it, it sure got complicated after that. I... In the introduction of your book, uh, you discuss the challenges you faced when writing the case of the slave child med. And I found myself particularly taken by your use of the phrase archival detective work to describe the tedious and time-consuming investigative work we as slavery study scholars are often required to perform when researching and writing about individuals who left virtually no firsthand accounts about their lives behind. And so I was hoping you... Uh, could share with our listeners what you meant by this phrase and moreover how the issue of archival silences were magnified by the fact that the individual that you were conducting research about was an enslaved child. I do like the phrase archival detective work. I think it makes it sound a little bit more glamorous and fun than it is sometimes, but there's absolutely nothing like following an archival trail. Sometimes it's tedious. Sometimes you can spend days going through a set of newspapers, a set of letters, a set of land deeds. You know, it, my research has brought me in all kinds of crazy directions. But when you find that thread, when you find that connection, that aha moment, there, there's absolutely nothing like it. There's, there's just great joy there. I, I think what's been interesting as how the field archival digitization has really changed over the, the course of my career. And I think there's benefits and drawbacks to working in digital environments. And that and that's been something really interesting to, to think about as well. It's all complicated even further when we're talking about a child. You know, Med didn't leave behind letters. We have no access to her interiority. We don't know what she looked like, what her feelings were, what, what she liked to eat, what she liked to do. There's, there's absolutely nothing. There's this gap. 
some some early readers of the manuscript thought that, you know, there's no evidence, so maybe you should just stick with the legal history. And I and I just couldn't do that. To me, the the story was about Med, and I had to find a way to restore her to her place in history. So so what if there's no evidence? Well, I followed the lead of many outstanding scholars in African American studies in studies of sexuality and gender as well. And so one of the things I was encouraged to do was to think past the first and last archival trace of Med. So when does the story begin? And again, one of my early readers from UMass suggested that I look at Phyllis Wheatley, and and I didn't understand what they were talking about. And I said, okay. And I started doing a little bit of reading, and I realized, yeah, the arrival of Phyllis Wheatley has everything to do with Med. So I had to think past where she shows up and where she disappears. What happens to Sarah Roberts in Boston with her school desegregation case? What happens if we think about Ruby Bridges? And all of a sudden, I had all these snippets of insight from thinking more broadly by widening my field of view. I also found it helpful to use literature and to research around Med. I could use literature creatively to try and reconstruct find traces of her. I also found that while we don't have access to Med or much about the child herself, we do have access to memoirs of children like James Jackson, who was a a, a young boy about the same age who lived about the same time in Boston. We know what Harriet Wilson said about her experience as a free Black child in New England. We know what Harriet Jacobs and Frederick Douglass said about what it meant to realize that they were enslaved, what it meant to be around six years old and recognize what their life's course was going to be and what their new lives and freedom meant as well. And so I think being responsibly creative was one way that I was able to kind of work around the fact that we didn't have any of the things that we traditionally think of as evidence in historical fields. I was really, really inspired by your very creative, but also very critical uh, assessment of several of the texts that you just alluded to a moment ago. Um, You know, in my own research, trying to understand the experiences of enslaved women uh, and the process of emancipation in New England, which uh, is where this story unfolds, I've always thought so much about that subtitle of Harriet Wilson's uh, narrative, where the shadows of slavery fall even there. And I've always been so interested by her life. You know, she's born in 1825 and dies in 1900, which I often will say to people when I discuss her, it gives a very kind of uh, easy chronological, you know, those dates kind of stick in my mind. But what she, her life in some ways is overlapping almost exactly with Med's life. And although Harriet Wilson went on uh, to, you know, die as an adult, her experiences of what I would probably term unfreedom are very similar to Med's in that this notion of freedom that we often are so beholden to in our field uh, actually didn't play out in the ways that we would assume in the antebellum North. But I also really found that use of of I believe it was Kadada Williams who you cited there uh, about the first and the last, and I was I was so taken aback by her use of that. I believe in the context of understanding the impacts of lynching before and after the event took place, and so I I I just found that there was so much um, there was so much to be said about your 
very flexible yet critical methodology in trying to get at the life of uh, a young child whose archival illegibility, I would say, um, didn't deter you from telling her story in the most complete way possible based on the records that you had. Um, and I, I found that just to be such an important uh, model for those of us who are working in the trenches of slavery studies now, who are often confronting this, you know, this question of uh, archival presence and archival silences to find so much inspiration in what you've laid out here in the book. Well, thank you. I, I appreciate that. And it, it's tricky business, as you know. And I found myself really struggling with responsible wording. You know, what could I say? And I had to, I found myself saying things a lot like, it isn't inconceivable. You know, I, I couldn't, to, that this or that may have happened. You know, I could say things like, well, Med was far from home and she probably missed her mother. Again, surmising based on the circumstances. And so I think using responsible language, being as accurate as possible about what I was doing and as clear about what is possible, you know, keeping the model, keeping the theoretical approach right open on the table without interfering with the narrative drive and the storytelling. I think that was the biggest challenge for me in writing the book and figuring out what was fair to say. And what could I say that didn't have so many qualifications and reservations that the reader would just lose lose interest. And uh, I'm glad to hear that you found the model useful. I think it's exciting to also situate your book in, you know, at the helm of a new era of slavery studies and that, you know, um, as the former gatekeepers of the field are retiring, um, we have really new and imaginative scholarship by individuals like yourself, but also Marisa Fuentes, Erica Armstrong Dunbar, Kadata Williams, and others that is really demonstrating that the archival silences that we often confront can be used in such a way that can be productive so long as we fill the gaps in the record with the historical context, which is one of the other things I really loved about this book. But I was hoping that you could um, tell us a bit more about the concept of free soil, which is, you know, not only in the subtitle of your book, but is also something that you examine in the early pages of the narrative. And so in the legal sense of the term, where and when does this concept of free soil originate? And how did the landmark case, how did this landmark case precipitate major shifts in the architecture of slavery throughout the Atlantic world in the late 18th century? Well, I owe an awful lot to the work of Sue Peabody, who's done so much amazing research about what she first calls the freedom principle and then later starts discussing in terms of free soil. And this is really a local popular tradition in the Atlantic world, dating back in many instances to the 16th century, in which people in bondage were freed when they crossed particular borders. And you can also see some expressions of the free soil principle in common law. But in England in 1772, in Somerset's case, his advocates were putting this free soil principle in a broader European tradition. And so I think it's interesting. It's more traditional than something that's codified. In James Somerset's case, the, it's in some ways, the, the narrative is fairly straightforward, People have argued about what the ruling has been since the, since the day it happened. And the interpretation and the popular understanding seems to be what makes it so important. And so in, in, in short, 
James Somerset was an enslaved man who was brought by his enslaver from British North America to London. While he was there, he self-emancipated. He ran away and was recaptured and was going to be sold to the West Indies for that transgression. And this is where he got the attention of Grandel Sharp and other leading abolitionists in Britain at the time who sued for his freedom. Now, Lord Mansfield's ruling was quite narrow. He says, this is about wrongful detainment. There's nothing in the law that authorizes his restraints. So he can't be removed from England without his permission. Somerset's advocates say that the pure air and free soil of England means that he is automatically transformed and made free. And what's so interesting to me about this case, and this is Sue Peabody's concept of vernacular law, that the popular understanding of the legal decision is what takes root. And people say, Lord Mansfield freed all the slaves in England, and he does his best for the rest of his career to say, that's not what I said. And it doesn't matter. That's what people believe. We then get William Cooper's famous poetic lines, slaves cannot breathe in England. They Once their lungs receive our air, they touch our country and their shackles fall. Ellis Gray Loring in Med's case in Boston decades later is going to cite that poetry. And so free soil is almost a more a popular belief than something that's codified, but it's absolutely powerful and transformative for the people who are able to take advantage and, and assert this right. Absolutely. And I think that was uh, the ways in which the Somerset decision of 1772 played out in not only the legal arguments that were put forth in the case of Commonwealth v. Abe's, but also in uh, the the decision that was ultimately made that we could discuss later in our interview by the just the judge presiding over the case, Lemuel Shaw of the Massachusetts uh, Supreme Judicial Court. I guess one of the things I would add too is that it was so wonderful to see the work of uh, historian T.K. Hunter live on, even though her life unfortunately ended far too soon. And the am- amazing work that she did with the Somerset case in her dissertation and in, in subsequent publications, um, it just in, in some ways was a, an irony in that her life, like meds, ended uh, far sooner than it should have. Um, but before you you dug into some of the specifics of the case of Commonwealth v. Aves in, in the subsequent chapters of the book, you do a really remarkable job setting the stage for your readers in chapter two by exploring the anti-slavery landscape of Boston in the early 1830s. And so I often joke that an entire course should be taught about this decade in American history, uh, which, you know, as a decade, I think to be one of the most, if not the most interesting uh, in the course of American history, particularly in the uh, lens of the African-American experience and in the, the fight against slavery. But what was going on in Boston in the years preceding the 1836 test case of Commonwealth v. Abe's? And who were some of the major players and organizations in the Boston anti-slavery scene at that time? I couldn't agree more about Boston in the 1830s. It's just wild. What, like, what isn't happening during this time? And, and I think the very first thing that I explained to my students or to more general audiences is that Anti-slavery activists in many circles were very unpopular in the 1830s. 
And that's something that I don't think people really understand, right? We see these people as the heroes, as the good guys, and the idea that they were a fringe radical cause, especially those arguing for immediate abolition and racial equality. People just don't understand that that's a pretty controversial thing to do in the 1830s Boston. And as a result, you get this strange rhetoric of martyrdom among white abolitionists that that can be really off-putting for contemporary readers, I think. The British writer Harriet Martineau writes a book literally called The Martyr Age in the U.S., writing about what happens in the 1830s with the abolitionist movement. But but I will say that there's absolutely no, no doubt that it was physically dangerous to be an abolitionist in Boston in the 1830s, and that this sort of activism also had a economic and and social and professional consequences for for many abolitionists. Now, they're building on the work of decades of activism by Black abolitionists. And more close to them temporally, we can see Mariah Stewart and David Walker, who really inspire and educate William Lloyd Garrison, the the most famous abolitionist from this period and location. They really helped launch his career in many ways. Now, the other thing that I think is important to realize that really launches Med's story is what the abolitionists call the mob year of 1835, in which the BFAS women, in many instances, acted as escorts against abolitionist mobs who wouldn't dare attack white ladies. And this experience was absolutely transformative and empowering. In fact, Garrison misses the whole med case because he's in exile in Connecticut during this time after nearly being lynched by a mob. And so I find myself in the very strange position of writing a book about 1830s abolitionism, and William Lloyd Garrison really isn't in it, which which seemed very strange to me at first. But I think it was also important because he's such a, a large historical figure that this kind of pulls out the lone hero image that we have of so many social movements and we really get a broader picture. So who am I focusing on? Well, I found myself through all these cases happening in the 1830s, the same group of people. I started calling them the usual suspects. The same lawyers, the same judges are meeting in in court repeatedly over issues of slavery and freedom. Some of the leading anti-slavery attorneys include Samuel Sewell and Ellis Gray Loring, who worked on the Med case. On Usually on the other side, we see Charles Curtis and Benjamin Robbins Curtis, who would go on to represent the Slaters and the Aves family and would end up on the Supreme Court event later in his career. And of course, we have the very famous Justice Lemuel Shaw, who's a towering giant of American jurisprudence. And for the literary folks out there, He's Melville's father-in-law. And so you can find him in in reading between the lines of lots of Melville's fiction. We also have the Boston Female Anti-Slavery Society, Mariah Weston Chapman and her five sisters who are really abolitionist leaders in Massachusetts. And of course, my beloved Lydia Mariah Child, the author and activist who is one of the people helping to launch the Med case. So there's so many things happening And it feels like it's a very small group of people who are interacting again and again over these issues and really pushing the abolitionist agenda forward. 
I actually kind of found it refreshing, <laughs> admittedly, that William Lloyd Garrison wasn't at the center of this case and this story. I mean, certainly his intellectual and philosophical guidance is is seen throughout the case, and there are correspondences written to and from him about Med's story. But as a person who's particularly interested in women, and specifically African-American women's contributions to the anti-slavery cause, I also thought that it was very uh, exciting to see the names of women who I study. You mentioned earlier the narrative of James Jackson and the author of that narrative, Susan Paul, who was a school teacher in Beacon Hill, but also Nancy Prince and other African-American women who are participating in this case and perhaps not as playing as significant or as large of a role, I should say, um, as the Chapman, uh, the, uh, the Chapman sisters, uh, I'm sorry, the Weston sisters, um, as well as uh, Lydia Mariah Child. But in a way, I think that what's also so remarkable about this story is that we, you see the genesis of the, of the New England Anti-Slavery Society in 1833. And just in this, you know, just a few short years later, you have all of these splinter organizations develop. And not only are their platforms and their objectives being solidified, but they're also being played out on the ground. And I think that with the med case, um, it, 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 it's demonstrated, you know, both the direction that they hope the anti-slavery cause will go, but also the influence of women in shaping the agenda of the anti-slavery cause was something that I found so striking about your analysis. But I was hoping you could tell us a bit more about Med and how her case came to the attention of the Boston Female Anti-Slavery Society in 1836. Sure. Um, what's 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 amazing about the the Med story is how local it is. You know that it it seems that somehow her presence on Beacon Hill is brought to the attention of Child and Chapman and others. And they go undercover to investigate. They pretend to be enrolling children in a Sunday school. They visit the Aves household. And you can imagine them kind of getting the scope of things while they're drinking tea. And then they go out and hire a lawyer. I mean, it's, it's, it's absolutely astonishing to see how this all happens. Why Med? Well, the fact that she's a little girl, that she's only about six years old, it's everything. They realize this is the perfect test case because this isn't the first case of its kind. In 1832, the Francisco case establishes the key Massachusetts precedent. Francisco had been brought from Cuba by Mrs. Howard to Massachusetts, and the, the lawsuit filed on his behalf was trying to make sure that she didn't take him back to Cuba and claim and continue to claim him as a slave. Now, Justice Shaw says, yeah, you're absolutely right. There's nothing here to authorize his restraint. She can't take him with, with, with her without his permission. But Francisco is about 12 or 13. And Justice Shaw feels like that is old enough to have some capacity for your own decision making. He's not an adult, but he's not a young child either. So what he does in these cases with either adults or teenagers is he has a private conversation with them in his chambers. And Francisco said he wanted to go back to Cuba with Mrs. Howard. And this is something that the abolitionists found confusing and infuriating. Like, why would anyone choose slavery, right? Why wouldn't they choose freedom? And, and I think they really weren't understanding that 
this was the only life Francisco knew. And he wasn't choosing slavery so much as perhaps choosing kinship or community or, or familiarity. So when they encounter a little girl with the circumstances being very similar, she was brought to Massachusetts by her and slave her. They realize that she's too young. There's no way she's going to be able to speak for herself and that they could act as her next friend and speak on her behalf. And so the fact that she's a young child, it means everything. It makes the whole thing possible. I think it's the key to understanding why she became the test case and what happened next. So a bit more about Med. What what do we know about her early life? Um, again, almost returning back to one of the questions we began our interview today with uh, in terms of, you know, so much uh, uncertainty about her life. But what, what do we know about her early life and how she arrived in Boston? We really know very little. We know her mother was purchased by Samuel Slater in New Orleans We know that she probably had siblings based on some remarks that happened um, in some of the later revelations in the discussion of the case. We know that she may have had a father on the scene, that her parents may have been married to some degree. There's a really interesting argument in the early days, uh, in the early procedures of the case, in which they explain that even if her parents were married, because they're enslaved, it doesn't matter that Samuel Slater is is really the one who is in charge of her life and what happens next. And so there are clues in that sense. We don't know any of their names. So we we don't know her mother's name. We don't know her father's name. We know that there are siblings. We don't know how many, if they're older, younger, any of those things. It's suggested that she travels with Mary Ave Slater, who is originally from Boston, that she's, go- she's going on a summer sojourn, like many Southerners did, to escape the summer heat. There's some suggestion that she may have been in poor health and that she was being taken north for, um, for purposes of her health. I can't imagine that, you know, when you think of what a six-year-old could accomplish, that, that she would be that helpful in terms of being a personal servant. But there's some suggestion that that might be the case as well. And that's really it. We don't know if she was tall or short. We don't know what she liked. We don't know how she interacted or what she thought about any of this business. And if if you look at the cover of the book, one of the reasons we decided to use um, a silhouette to represent Med and her mother was simply because that's that's all we have. And, And I was inspired. The actual silhouette images come from um, some some exhibits at Mount Vernon, and they were wondering about the challenges of how do they represent enslaved people, and they decided that using silhouette was the way to go. And so I, I kind of we kind of built on that inspiration. So that's what's so difficult about this story is so much of what I'm doing is surmising what I know about young children and what other people say about what it was like to be a young child at this time. But there, there's she's this kind of mysterious ghostly like presence in the middle of the story. And, and I, and I do wish we knew more. I think that was one of the other interesting things about this case is that the, the court records themselves and the published uh, pamphlets that, um, you know, annotated the case for 
you know, through the abolitionist lens, didn't lend very much information about Med or her mother or her life in bondage in New Orleans. And I think that that only added to the difficulty of trying to restore her and her life, you know, and center it in your narrative. And despite that, I think that one of the, the most interesting threads as I was reading through the the case and as it unfolded was how important the relationship between Med and her her enslaved mother in New Orleans was to both sides on the case. So I was hoping that perhaps you could discuss a bit more why the relationship between Med and her mother, who isn't there to even speak her own cause, uh, was such a focal point for both sides when determining the ultimate outcome in the case of Commonwealth v. Aves. I, I think you're absolutely right about that. Everyone talks about Med and her mother. And I think one of the main reasons is one of the major anti-slavery arguments was that slavery is evil because it separates families. And the BFAS women, the way they claim standing in this case is through the kind of cultural authority of motherhood. And it's such an interesting move because a lot of them were not actually mothers. And yet it's the mantle of motherhood that gives them standing, that they're able to stand in for Med's mother in this case because she's not Mm. able to do so. Mm. And so you have both sides are arguing that it was the other side separating a child from her mother. You know, Slater's lawyers say, isn't this terrible? How could you separate a child from her mother? And Ellis Gray Loring and Med's attorneys would say, well, if you care so much about that, then you should free her mother and her siblings as well. And besides, if she goes back to her mother in New Orleans, you all could separate them at any moment. But it becomes this this kind of key rhetorical point. And even to the point where after the case is over, BFAS sends a letter to Mary Abe Slater and it, it's sent on behalf of the organization, but I've seen it in, in handwriting. It's child's handwriting. It's child's rhetoric, for sure. And it's urging her to free Med's mother and siblings. And the way they make this case is they say, you know what? We're on different sides of this issue because of an accident of political geography. But we share the same biblical morality. And they say, let us try to come together on gospel ground. And they appeal repeatedly to Mary Ave Slater on the basis of the golden rule. Do as you would be done by. You wouldn't want to be enslaved. What if it was your child who were enslaved? And, and so on as well. And, you know, in this letter, they say the one thing that still troubles about us, we are that we're still troubled by, we celebrate Med's freedom, but we know the sacred bonds between a mother and her child. So even after the case is over, there's this sense that, yeah, maybe there's something to this separation that we want to try and address. But they're also very clear that we're not the problem. We are not the ones separating Med and her mother, and no doubt Med's mother agrees. And they they make a pretty broad assumption there as well. The thing is, of course, we don't know what Med's mother thought about this. We don't know what she thought about the case, what she knew. We don't know if she heard about Med's early death. There is just, again, a remarkable gap, remarkable absence. And one of the things that I came to find troubling was how readily the BFS women were to substitute 
themselves for Med's mother and assume that they knew what was best and that what she would want. I think that's a theme uh, throughout the book that you hit on uh, repeatedly in this narrative is the myopia of abolitionists, for lack of better words, and at times how short-sighted their their ambitions and in, in some ways how they didn't weigh the consequences of their decisions before pursuing them, which I think is an important argument that you present later in the book as to why they did so. But could you say a bit more about what Justice Shaw ultimately rules in the case and how Med's life, what we know about her life between the ruling that was handed down by Justice Shaw and her death, uh, I believe two years later, um, how that almost circles back to what you were just saying about the assumptions that the BFAS woman made about Med. And yet at the same time, I think also goes back to what I was just saying about the ways in which their short-sightedness ultimately had a very tragic consequence in the story. Yes, absolutely. Well, Shaw is very careful. He rules very narrowly here. He says that there is nothing in the law of Massachusetts to authorize her restraint. So he basically says, because she was brought here by her enslaver, she has the option to stay. And that's, and that's it. He, and he even flat out says, there's nothing magic about the air of Massachusetts. There's no magic free soil. You know, the, the kind of lofty rhetoric from the Somerset case that carries across the Atlantic. He doesn't want anything to do with the poetry, with Loring's very, very flowery arguments. He cites everything, the Bible, natural law, moral law. And he tries to frame the case as broadly as possible. And Shaw is very careful to say, no, in this instance, here's what happens. We know that Shaw is infamous throughout his career for enforcing the the various federal fugitive slave laws. And so he's pretty clear that he's following the law here as well. So it's pretty narrow. That said, he's, he's very careful to make sure that even in other cases, when the when people decline to accept the opportunity to stay in Massachusetts, he says, this is on record. If you ever change your mind, if you ever have the opportunity to come back, we have this ruling in your favor. So he's he's ruling, he's really walking a tightrope here, trying to rule very, very narrowly on this point. What, what, again, it's one of the remarkable things about 1830s Massachusetts, where it seems like everyone knows everyone. Two years later, after the ruling, he encounters Lydia Maria Child socially and asks after Med. And she has to tell him that she died. And he's absolutely devastated and says, you know, a lot of Southerners argue that she would have been better off being sent back to New Orleans with her mother. And maybe that was the case. And so the abolitionists are backpedaling really hard, trying to prove to Justice Shaw that what he did was the right thing, that she was given all possible care and consideration, and that even the short life and freedom had been worth it. And it's amazing how a very similar thing happens in the United States that happens in England in that it's the celebration of free soil. The magic of crossing a border transforms someone's very being from slavery to freedom. It's not what the ruling says, and it kind of doesn't matter um, because every, everyone celebrates the case 
um, as as they interpret it. It's almost like the public relations of the case wins out over the narrow legal ruling. I kept finding myself, you know, without giving too much of the narrative away, so frustrated by, in some ways, I don't want to use the hip, the word hypocrisy, but the inaction, I guess, uh, on behalf of some of the key players in this story, among them uh, Lydia Mariah Childs, and particularly Ellis Gray Loring, the attorney f- for um, the Boston Female Anti-Slavery Society, and his wife, Louisa, and that they understand that Med is not well for a period of time, correct me if I'm wrong, before she passes away in the summer of 1838. They also, you know, send money on her behalf. And I believe a sofa at some point, Loring sends to uh, the Samaritan Asylum for um, Colored Orphans, as it was referred to then, for her care. But none of them stopped to consider the idea that, you know, her her presence in this institution was in so many ways precipitated by their actions and by their intervention in this um, case. And so I'm, I'm, I was wondering if throughout this, you also were a bit frustrated or, or wondered to yourself why they themselves didn't take med in or adopt her. If, if they, you know, so often wanted to assume this metaphoric mantle of motherhood, as you referred to a few moments ago, but at the same time, I think in, in some ways it almost underscores the distance that still existed between abolitionists and the formerly enslaved during this time, if that makes sense. Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. And I think one of the challenges of writing this book was my growing understanding of the fact that these historical figures who did so many great things also used and abandoned a child. And it took me a while to be able to write those words directly. These were people who I admired early in my academic career, and and I still do in many ways. And yet I couldn't wrap my head around the fact, why didn't someone adopt Med? You know, or why wasn't she fostered informally and through the many informal networks on Beacon Hill at the time? In some ways, what happened to her was fairly predictable in the sense that this is how young children who were poor or, or orphaned, this is, they were kind of absorbed into a, a kind of social welfare system. If she had lived, she probably would have been bound out. She probably would have been an indentured servant. And how do you, how do you match? So in some ways, it's predictable. It's the Frederick Douglass line, all boys were bound to someone. And yet, in, in all the speeches in the courtroom and the news articles and all of those things, they promised men a new life and freedom. They said she would never want a friend, that they would see her, you know, raised to adulthood and all of those things. And they just didn't. And it, it was really quite heartbreaking because I think my early work was good intentions gone awry, you know, this terrible irony of fate. And then I realized that, you know, she may have been ill before she arrived in Massachusetts. And, and I'm certainly not suggesting that she was mistreated, but she wasn't embraced. She wasn't treated well. Um, she was she was a great poster child until she wasn't. And it, it's it's devastating. It's not easy to read. And it, it wasn't it wasn't easy to try and figure out how to how to represent that fairly. But I I, I think the, the ultimate conclusions I came to um, were the right ones. 
I agree. I think that this uh, this question, um, it, it makes you wonder almost to step inside Justice Shaw's mind for a moment when he realized that she had died and whether or not he made the right decision. I think that there is something to be said there. Uh, I think you wrote on page 69 of the book, like, would, would Med have better been better off having to be um, I'm sorry, would Med have been better off if she were to be sent back to New Orleans to be with her mother? Because there were, you know, similar to Francisco, the case in 1832 that you discuss in the book, uh, there, there were kinship networks there. There were there was a sense of familiarity, whereas Boston, as a six-year-old um, in an institution where in, in so many ways were absolutely antithetical to the very grandiose remarks made by the abolitionists that she would want no friend. Um, I think that that reality is something that I, I wonder if in subsequent writings of the abolitionist woman that you study, it's something that they re- reflected on or in the ways in which perhaps the story of Med was used to um, the ways in which I guess they revised that narrative and how they revisited it and in some ways made some changes to the narrative yet again later on in the years before the, the Civil War to, again, in a lot of ways, serve some pretty self-serving interest. And that's exactly right. When What's amazing about the Med case is that you can read every single element of the case from the original writ to the judge's ruling. It's published in the Liberator. It's published in newspapers around the country. But I could not find a single mention of her death. I couldn't find an obituary. I couldn't find her grave in the Boston area. And and perhaps now with this book, other scholars will be able to do better than I did, but I sure tried. Um, But the contrast between the publicity around the case and the absolute erasure after her death was absolutely stunning to me. And, and what I found, and this is where looking to fiction was was useful and, and eye-opening for sure, was that there was fiction written around the legal principles of Commonwealth v. Aves, but the story was changed. A couple key things happened. The med character, the person suing for on be, for freedom based on transit, based on being brought to Massachusetts rather than being self-emancipated or a fugitive from slavery, that that key element of Commonwealth v. Aves was the plot point in lots of fiction by Child, by Chapman, and even in uh, White Jacket by, by Herman Melville. The differences were that the person, the main protagonist, was made to be an adult. So all these questions about the anomalous status of being a free child of enslaved parents, that was erased. People could people could choose. And there's a happy ending. Nobody dies. They have a new life and freedom. And the story becomes this, again, this abolitionist triumph. The other thing that we see, all of a sudden, they start mentioning the name Med around the 1850s. You can start seeing her in some abolitionist speeches and the occasional news article in reference to other formerly enslaved people like Jane Johnson, um, in reference to the infamous Dred Scott case as well. And again, they talk about her almost as if she had been an adult, and they don't mention the fact that she had a tragically short life and freedom in the North. And so the fact that she's rewritten and reworked 
and kind of revitalized at later points, that made me realize that this is quite deliberate, right? That this is something that's done strategically, that even decades after her death, she's a talking point. And what's amazing is if you don't know the case, if you don't know the story, you'd miss it. You'd absolutely miss it. But all of these texts read completely differently, understanding Med's history. I think that is one of the most important takeaways uh, to reflect on something that you just mentioned. Um, her 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 very short life in Northern Freedom, uh, which to me is 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 a bit of a, a troubling phrase to use considering the conditions of her life. But as no longer being enslaved in the South, um, I guess for a lack of better words. Um, and yet the abolitionists ultimately fail her. And I think that that conclusion that you draw is absolutely true. But I think one of the most important takeaways about your work is, and, and it reminded me so much of the scholarship of of Joanne Mellish, um, in which she disrupts this very romantic idea about New England slavery and the process of gradual emancipation. And I think what is so important about your work is that it gives one, not only one, I should say, uh, it uses Med as the central focus of the case in, in, in her story, but there are all of these additional children who you bring into the fold and you discuss the ways in which the decision in the Commonwealth v. Abe's case were used to adjudicate similar questions about slave transit and comedy involving enslaved children. But I think that that is perhaps what I would say was one of the most important contributions or interventions made by your book, is that it really does demonstrate how metaphoric this notion of freedom is that we as historians of slavery have held on to for so long. But when we peel back the many layers of the story, we actually are met by a much more difficult or uh, challenging story to actually confront and to assess critically. Um, I'm I'm wondering, you know, without giving too much away, you you dedicate space in the concluding chapters of the book to bring the story of Med and the history of the anti-slavery movement in Massachusetts full circle. And the historical ironies that unfold in so many of the lives of the key players and attorneys in this case, were absolutely fascinating to follow. And I was hoping in our final few minutes together, you could perhaps speak about one or two of these characters and what became of them after the case of the slave child med came to its tragic end. Sure. Um, but, and before I do that, I, I, I would like to circle back to something you were saying. I think you're absolutely right. Your, your concept of Northern unfreedom I, I think it's much more apt, and and I, I think it's a really really useful phrase and and way of of thinking about the lives of these children for sure. Um, in, in terms of what what happens next for so many of these people, it is really absolutely wild. You just can't make this stuff up. And I think the most familiar one, and I think perhaps one of the more more interesting people is definitely Benjamin Robbins Curtis, right? So he's the lawyer for the enslavers in Boston. This case is at the very start of his career, but he goes on to serve on the U.S. Supreme Court, and he's best known in history for what every historian calls his blistering dissent in the Dred Scott case, right? The famous case that said Dred Scott had no standing, that African-Americans could never be citizens, that his residence in free territories 
would not lead to his freedom. And he dissents from every single point. He And he flips sides. This time he argues in favor of freedom. And he cites Commonwealth versus Abe's several times in his arguments. It, it's absolutely remarkable that this one man frames the legal debate on slave transit issues, despite the fact that he's on the losing side in both cases. And what's really interesting to see, after the Dred Scott decision and his dissent is published, he's still not a popular guy among abolitionists in Boston. They don't like him at all. They don't like his attempts at at compromise, his support of the Compromise of 1850. And they're really kind of give him a grudging respect. And I think Samuel Sewell says it best. He says, well, I'm glad he wrote what he did, but he does it with the moral sensibility of an iceberg, right? So they're still mad. They still remember the guy who's been causing trouble in Boston throughout his legal career. But it, but it's but it's absolutely stunning. And the, the parallelism and the symmetry of his roles in those two cases are really important. There's there's one other person I do want to mention a little bit more is Samuel Slater, who it might confuse people. He's not the industrial revolution guy. It's just no, no relation, no connection. It took me a while to really establish that because, you know, you start looking for Samuel Slater and you start seeing about, you know, looms in Rhode Island. It's like, nope, <laughs> different guy. Um, he He's the farthest gump of the 19th century in lots of ways. He just shows up everywhere. And I know it's almost like an aside, the thing when I write about him, but I just had to get it in there because again, his life is remarkable. And I I hope people take a minute to take a look at his adventures because he's this not well-known figure who was involved in just about every major event of the 19th century. It's, it's, it's amazing. I do a lot of wild speculation about what was he doing in Galveston and Cuba, you know, but um, I'll leave it up to readers to decide what what they think he was doing, but he, his is a life worth considering as well. To bring the conversation um, to the present in a lot of ways, um, I found the epilogue of the book to be so captivating. And I, I read it just this morning in preparation for our interview. And I was really struck by the parallels that you draw between med um, and subsequent young women who were involved in school desegregation struggles. And I was hoping that you could talk a bit more about that in, in an effort to connect this history. You know, often it's, it's said that as, you know, we, we study the past in order to make sense of our present. And I think that some of the parallels you draw are just so excellently made. Well, I appreciate that. Thank you so much. And, and I think... One of the things that brought me to Sarah Roberts was we're talking about a lot of the same lawyers, a lot of the same people in the same in the same Boston neighborhood. And if Med's freedom or unfreedom in, in Boston asked the question, you know, what did it mean to be a black free child in Massachusetts? Well, Sarah Roberts' case answers that question in, in just the next decade in in many ways. The case, Sarah Roberts' desegregation case was also ruled on by our Justice Shaw, and it also creates a really important precedent for the Plessy versus Ferguson case, the, the infamous Plessy versus Ferguson case. So I, I thought Sarah was quite, was quite useful. And I know when people say, like, 
well, why were you writing about Ruby Bridges? Um, the, the thing that Ruby Bridges gave me was the chance to, to see what was it like to be a test case. And what was amazing about some of her work is to hear her own reflections of what it was like to be that age and what was it like to be part of a legal precedent that, that you just didn't even understand. Um, and, and the real dangers, physical, psychological, that people had as well. And so she just she just kind of gave me this way in to, to what that was like. And some of the things she had to say about people not seeing a child, about being used and abandoned, it just it just rang true to me. And, and I'm glad that I'm glad that it was useful because it helped me think through what the things ha- what the things that happened to, that had happened to Med might have meant for her and, and her own life. There are all kinds of differences in their experiences, of course. And yet I found that there were some some psychological insights that I found really helpful. Absolutely. I mean, I it, it's interesting how the Eyes on the Prize series really brought Ruby Bridges back to the forefront about conversations of being a child and living through the civil rights movement. And I know there's some really interesting scholarship that is being done on that very topic now. And it's nice to see that. Um I think uh, to put it into perspective, to think about how uh, the the local struggle for civil rights kind of seized historians' attention in the 1990s, but then increasingly people began to look into the contributions of women to the movement, uh, the long civil rights movement. But now it, it's that conversation is swelling and expanding more to encompass other voices who have been at the margins of the history of the civil rights movement. But I was I was surprised to learn that Bridges felt that she had been. Um, abandoned by the NAACP and that there was not much subsequent follow-up in her story, despite the fact that these images of her being escorted into the elementary school in New Orleans have have seized the American imagination uh, during the 20th century struggle for Black civil rights. And so I think that those parallels were just so well made. And it's it really is such a, a tragedy that we don't have more, you know, uh, information about med, but also that we don't have a firsthand uh, interview or any type of writing in which she was able to articulate how, you know, what her experiences were after the decision was handed down by Justice Shaw. Well, thank you so much, Professor Weirman, for joining me today. As a reminder, our for to our listeners, uh, Professor Weirman's book, The Case of the Slave Child Med, Free Soil and Anti-Slavery Boston can be purchased by uh, the University of Massachusetts Press, both in paperback and hardcover, right? Yes. Great. Well, thank you again, Professor Weirman, for joining me today. It was such a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Well, thank you. The pleasure was mine.